Hi, this is Leah Remini and Mike Rinda. And we are very excited to announce that we are finally doing a podcast. Yes, and the name is Scientology Fair Game, everybody. Scientology Fair Game. And thank you to all of you because we tweeted out, like, should we do a podcast? What of everything? Overwhelming yes. Amazing response. Listen to Scientology Fair Game on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you in part by the podcast Deep Cover. Hey everyone, we want to tell you about another podcast we think you'll love. Marijuana, guns, a dictator, the Cold War, and the greatest undercover drug bust in history. Deep Cover is the true story that begins with a Detroit FBI agent going undercover in an outlaw motorcycle gang and ends with the U.S. invasion of a foreign country. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Jake Halpern guides listeners on this wild journey, perfect for fans of Narcos, Sons of Anarchy, or anything by the Coen brothers. Deep Cover. You can hear it now in your favorite podcast app or at deepcoverpod.com. Welcome to Monster, DC Sniper a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Tenderfoot TV, or their employees. Listener discretion is advised. A deadly rampage. Victims slain randomly, all within a one-mile radius, all within 15 hours. The first shooting at 6.04 last night. A 55-year-old Caucasian male killed in the parking lot of a grocery store. Then early this morning at 7.41, a Hispanic man mowing his lawn shot dead. Half an hour later, a 40-year-old cab driver gunned down while pumping gas. Then another 30 minutes later, a Hispanic woman shot fatally in the head. It was around 8 in the morning. They parked my car and I was late for work, so... I was running. My name is Susie Cooper. I was very lucky because at 8 o'clock in the morning, I was the only car in that area. So they could easily have gotten me. I got inside the beauty shop and I went to have a cup of coffee and all of a sudden I heard shots. I was really shaky. I opened the back door, thinking it was coming from there. No, but then I, I went back up front of the shop, and I saw this woman sitting on a bench. She was dead. It was so hard to believe what I was seeing. You would think you are at a movie scene. You know, it was a mess. The bench was in front of a restaurant, so the bullet went through the window of the restaurant. That poor woman didn't see it coming. There is a ruthless person on the loose. What unnerves this community the most is the randomness of the murders. Ordinary people doing ordinary things. All that the victims appear to have had in common, each was shot to death by a single bullet. Be careful. These guys are using weapons that are going to go right straight through our bulletproof vest. The massive manhunt continues, but police admit they don't know who or what they're dealing with or what their motive might be. There's a white van just went by with two guys in it. From iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV, this is Monster, DC Sniper.
34-year-old Sarah Ramos was sitting on a bench in front of a Peruvian restaurant when the sniper shot and killed her. This was now the second day of attacks. Earlier that morning, Sonny Buchanan and Prim Kumar Walaker had both been shot and killed, making Ramos the third victim of the day. All of these shootings were horrifying and tragic, but for some reason, this shooting in particular always stuck with me. And when I visited the site of the murder, it unsettled me. Oh boy. This feels a little, this feels a little off-putting. We're sitting in the parking lot and this is where Sarah Ramos was killed. Sarah was 34 years old. She had just gotten off a bus and she was sitting on a bench, you know, next to a, a post office. And, and she was reading a book and she was shot. She was just, I mean, the, the randomness of it. And that's what really gets you about all of these killings. You know, you're essentially a sitting duck. You have no way to defend yourself. No one did. No one did. A woman sitting on a bench reading a book? How friggin' cowardly is that? It's just the idea that she's just plucked off, man, and just like, that's no regard for human life at all. That's just, that's literally target practice. And they just drive away. That just sort of brings home for me the depravity of all of it. The victim was laying on a bench with a sheet over her that was horrible, really. That's the first one that I went to. My name's John DeSoulis. I was a crime analyst for Montgomery County Police. They called me um, to interview a witness who only spoke Spanish. Juan Carlos, I think his name is. When police first arrived at the crime scene, they found Juan Carlos Vieta nearby. They don't know if he's a suspect, if he's a witness. He's probably around 22, I think. Typical landscaper-looking guy wearing, you know, a landscaper uniform. So I took him aside and started asking him questions. He was pretty clear that he didn't see where the shots came from. There's a uh, there's an access road that runs parallel to the parking lot. He was walking down that road and had actually passed the front of the store where she was sitting on the bench. And more or less, as soon as he got past the, like, the corner where he could see her, he heard the shot. Within a few seconds, he saw a white box truck leave, passed right by her, and then drove west up to Georgia Avenue. It would have had to have been a drive-by shooting, almost. It was like five seconds or something after he heard the shots, the van left the scene. He was the only one that, that was really close, and he was the only one that saw any kind of vehicle and he described the box truck very well, you know, to the point where it had, like, damage to the rear bumper. Vieta described a white box truck, a delivery truck with a cab and separate cargo area. Police immediately started pulling over white box trucks and similar vehicles. But finding that one truck in the middle of D.C.'s rush hour traffic was almost impossible. Well, you know how many white box trucks there are out there? You're going to see at least two or three white vans or box trucks sitting in just about every parking lot in the country. My name is David C. Reichenbaugh, retired lieutenant, Maryland State Police. Reichenbaugh played a major role in the D.C. sniper investigation, and he later wrote a book that detailed what was going on behind the scenes. 
about 9.30 or so, I guess it was, I get a phone call from the Rockville Barrack. Dave, I don't know what's going on here in Montgomery County, but there's been a rash of shootings. Montgomery police are running around like crazy. Looks like this might have started the night before, but we've got three bodies down and a shooter out there. And Montgomery County is is asking for help. This could be the next terrorist attack. Can you get the state police rolling? If there's one thing that the Maryland State Police can do, and it's actually by design, we can get 200 to 300 troopers at any place in the state within a couple of hours. Our goal was to just simply flood the entire area with road troopers to supplement Montgomery County. The troopers were coming in from all over the state, and I'd brief them on what we knew, which at that time was very, very little. Uh, We were looking for a couple of guys in a white box truck shooting people. That's about what we knew. We didn't know if we had a single shooter. We didn't know if we had maybe multiple teams. Our troopers were stopping every white van, every white box truck, and their instructions were, be careful because these guys are using weapons that are going to go right straight through our bulletproof vests. A sniper case is about the worst kind of case you can have. Most homicides, the shooter has some connection with the victim, boyfriend, girlfriend, ticked off neighbor, relative. There's some sort of a connection that can be made. This case, we have nothing. A white van, white box truck, and a high-speed bullet. That's all we had. And spreading panic, we had plenty of that. There have been a number of white vans all across this county that have been stopped by police officers, a number of people calling in. In fact, so many people that, as Andrea mentioned, they're inundating the system. Don't call 911 unless you feel that you have solid information about a white box truck. Police continued hunting for the white box truck, but the terror of October 3rd wasn't over. Just an hour and 20 minutes after the Ramo shooting, and just eight miles south on Connecticut Avenue, the sniper struck again. In the high-stakes world of crime and justice, understanding the legal system isn't optional, it's critical. Hi, I'm Philip Holloway, host of the podcast Sworn from Tenderfoot TV and iHeartRadio. We've got an all-new season, and this time we're tackling the problems directly. We'll look at faulty forensic science, false confessions, and mandatory minimum prison sentences. California has the largest prison system in the United States. The United States has the largest prison system in the world. In some cases, capital murder cases, just preventing a death sentence and getting life without parole was a win. People just want justice so bad that they're willing to accept everything at face value when they need to really look deeper and really stand up when they hear about an injustice that's happening. Season two of Sworn is underway, and it's available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the high-stakes world of crime and justice, understanding the legal system isn't optional, it's critical. Hi, I'm Philip Holloway, host of the podcast Sworn from Tenderfoot TV and iHeartRadio. We've got an all-new season, and this time we're tackling the problems directly. We'll look at faulty forensic science, false confessions, and mandatory minimum prison sentences. California has the largest prison system in the United States. The United States has the largest prison system in the world. 
In some cases, capital murder cases, just preventing a death sentence and getting life without parole was a win. People just want justice so bad that they're willing to accept everything at face value when they need to really look deeper and really stand up when they hear about an injustice that's happening. Season two of Sworn is underway and it's available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The fourth shooting on October 3rd took place at 9.58 a.m. Maria Welsh stopped by Safeway after dropping off her kids at school. So I had come out of the grocery store. Literally, I remember just so vividly that the parking lot was completely empty. It was just very quiet. It was probably about 10 o'clock in the morning, and I just was loading the back of my car up and got in the car, and as I started the car and went to back out of my parking spot, I heard this loud, like, pop, this loud, like, kind of sound. Then at that moment, there was a gentleman walking behind my car. I remember, like, slamming on the brakes and saying, oh, my goodness, did I just hit something? And he says to me, no, it came from in front of your car. So as I was pulling up towards the main road, which is Connecticut Avenue, I hear someone calling for help. And I kind of look over and I see this woman next to the vacuum cleaner laying on the ground. That woman, Lori Ann Lewis Rivera, had been cleaning her minivan using the gas station's vacuum. Now she was lying on the pavement, tangled in the vacuum cleaner's hose. Maria Welsh, a nurse, jumped out of her car and raced over to help. And as I was running towards her, then I realized that I probably should have my cell phone in case I needed an ambulance. I turned to grab my cell phone, and when I turned back around towards her, it looked like she was having a seizure. I, at the time, knew nothing about any sniper shooting, and I thought that something had happened with the vacuum, like an electrical current of some sort. So as I was approaching her, I couldn't really do anything because the vacuum cleaner was still running. We always kind of learned that with, you know, electrical equipment, you don't want to touch the victim. So I called 911. The person that answered the phone said, okay, well, do you know what happened? I said, no, I don't know what happened. I just heard this loud noise, like a loud bang. And she said, what kind of noise do you think it is? And I said, I, I don't know, like a bomb of some sort. It's like a bomb? Yeah, but it wasn't a bomb. I mean, it was like that kind of noise. It was like a, like a gunshot, maybe? Kind of. I said, I've never heard a gunshot. And she said, okay, just sit tight. We'll send an ambulance to you. And then the vacuum stopped. I do remember standing there being like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, what am I going to do for her? What can I do for her? And at this point, a small crowd had sort of gathered around me, yelling like, we have to do something, you know, what's the matter with her? Do something. And of course, I make this big announcement like, okay, I'm a nurse. I'm going to I'm gonna do CPR. When I went to go pull the vacuum cleaner hose out from around her, she started bleeding from her mouth, which then prevented me from doing any kind of mouth to mouth. So I just started doing chest compressions. No ambulance arrives. There is a fire station that's less than a quarter of a mile from the gas station that I can see. And I'm thinking, why are they not sending me anything? I'm like, I need help. There's like a crowd now and we're all screaming, where's the ambulance, where's the ambulance? I later did find out that they had told first responders not to respond yet until the area was secure. And as a nurse, I can understand that. And you're trying to minimize the amount of 
casualties you have, you don't send everybody in. But when you're in it, I felt like I was being hung out to dry there for a second. Within a few minutes, this man shows up in this little pickup truck with like a tackle box of equipment. And he says, I'm an EMT and I can help you. And I said, great, I don't know what's happened. So at that point, I start to notice that there's like SWAT team on top of the buildings across the street from us. There's agents everywhere. They have wrapped the entire area with like yellow tape and they're now gathering people and telling them to go inside the gas station. And this agent comes up to me and tells me, I need to get inside the gas station quickly. I was like, I don't understand, I'm doing CPR, I'm a nurse. And he says, the EMT's here, he can do it, you go inside. And I'm like, we really should be doing two person CPR. And he's like, I'll do it. And tells me to get inside the gas station. And I said, I don't know why everyone's making such a big deal. This woman was vacuuming her car. Like, what is going on? So now we're all standing in the gas station and I called my husband at the time and I said, gosh, I'm so sorry. I decided to stop at the Safeway before coming home. And something happened with some woman vacuuming her car and I ended up doing CPR. So now the police are telling me I have to stay inside the gas station. And then within like five minutes, he calls me back and he's like, okay, you need to get out of there. That woman was shot. And I was like, no, she wasn't. I think I would know if she'd been shot. I did CPR on this woman. There's no blood, there's no gunshot. I don't know what you're talking about. Mind you, the bullet went through her back and then she fell backwards and landed on her back. There was no exit wound. So when we're doing CPR and chest compressions, there was nothing. You couldn't see anything. At this point, I think it was an FBI agent comes in to take our statements. And I remember asking, I said, you know, can you just tell me what happened with the woman? Was she shot? And he said she was. I got a phone call and that was one of the detectives. He asked me, are you Nelson Rivera? I said, yes. And he said, Lori is your wife? I said, yes. She just got shot. And, you know, from that point to now, my life changed completely. My name is Nelson Rivera, and I was married to Lori and Luis Rivera. I am from uh, the country of Honduras, Central America. When I came to the United States, I started going to uh, the Church of Jesus Christ Literary Saint. And that's when I met Lori. She was a member of the church. She was a sweet, very sweet girl. And I fell in love with her. And the funny part was um, I didn't speak in, no English at all. So it was hard for me to ask her out for a date, but I figured it out. I asked my older brother, can you call her? And told her I want to take her out for dinner. So he called her and she said, yeah. I take her to a Hispanic restaurant and I don't know what to say because I didn't know how to say it. It was just weird and <laughs> funny at the same time. You know, I was just looking at her and she was just looking at me. So after dinner, it was about eight o'clock at night. In front of us was the temple of the Jesus Christ Larry Saint. And I knew that word, Mary. And I asked her, do you want to marry me? And she told me, are you crazy? <laughs> and I guess I was crazy by that time. 
I was lucky she took me back. <laughs> we kept the uh, dating for a while, and then we got married November 21st in 1997. And Jocelyn, uh, she was born in January 1999. Lori, she was, she was a good mom. Jocelyn always wanted to go to the pool, and she always wanted mommy to take her. She was so little, but she still remembered that mommy was taking her to the pool. And that's the only memory Jocelyn remember from her mom. That morning before, before I left to work, it was something completely different than any other day. She was sleeping and um, I just standing over there by the side of the bed for about five minutes and then I left. So when I was driving around eight o'clock in the morning, I was listening to the news and the radio and I heard about people being shot in Maryland and I think it was about close to nine o'clock. I got a phone call and that was one of the detectives and uh, he asked me, are you Nelson Rivera? I said, yes. And he said, are you uh, driving? I said, yes. Is somebody with you? I said, yes. And he told me, can you pull over? I got something to tell you, and but I want you to pull over. <laughs> so I pull over and um, he said, Lori is your wife? I said, yes. She just got shot. I just get off of that truck and um, I run across the street because I don't know what to do. And, you know, I was lucky a car don't hit me or something. <laughs> it's even hard, you know, after so many years. She, she, she was so young, she was just 25 years old. You know, we drove back to Kensington, Maryland, to that shell gas station where she got shot. You know, her blood was there and, um, you know, there was a lot of people. And I was just wondering, you know, if my daughter was in the car and 15 minutes before that happened, she dropped Jocelyn off at the daycare. So I pick her up and uh, she was three years and eight months. But I said, you know, Jocelyn, I got to talk to you. That was the most hard part for me to do. What am I gonna say, you know? There's just millions of things that come to my head. I said, Jocelyn, um, mommy, she's not gonna be with us anymore. She's with Heavenly Father now. She's gonna watch us from there. She's gonna watch you the whole time. That was not an easy thing to say. It really, really impact Jocelyn's life. Any holidays, any Mother's Day, it is just, it's been hard. When she was young, you know, she was saying that, Daddy, I just, I just want to die, you know, to go with my mom. Because she's in heaven, so I want to be in heaven with her. You know, that was, uh, that was um, devastating for me every time when she was saying something like that. I said, you know, 
it's not our time yet. It's that everybody is going to have their own time and she'll be waiting for us. That's the kind of thing I was dealing with. And, you know, and still, now she's she's 20. But there are some moments Jocelyn still miss her mom, you know. It's not the same. While victims' families grieved the senseless loss of their loved ones, the police and the media were stepping into high gear. Here's former police Lieutenant David Reichenbaugh again. As word was getting out through the media and everywhere, the, the panic was starting to set in. Many of the merchants, out of fear, have locked their doors and they are letting customers in and out as necessary. There's a great deal of fear going on. If you remember, this is back in the early days of cable news. So this was new for law enforcement to have to deal with a media that was 24-7. Caused us some problems down the road because it was a learning curve, not only, I think, for the media, but also for us. There's a lot of concern since these shootings are so random and so public that parents have wanted to go to the schools and pull their kids out. A little while ago, we heard from the local police captain, Charles Moose. Here's what he had to say. We have no information that this is anything to do with the schools. None of the victims have been of anything close to school age. None of the locations are close to the schools. I think the school kids are safe. They will be released under normal schedule. We won't create a situation of panic, of traffic, that at this point the police department is not capable of handling. Now certainly I can't arrest a parent that insists on going to the school to get their kid. But please, don't do it. It doesn't help the situation at this point. So please, the media, if you can help me get that message out, Derek Belisles was a public information officer for Montgomery County, Maryland. It was his job to manage relations between the media and the police. Dealing with the media on a case that's attracted the attention of the country was a little bit overwhelming. They immediately showed up in our parking lot and just set up tents. And in fact, we called it Camp Moose. Those of us who are public information officers refer to how big an event is based upon how many chemical toilets are delivered. And, and I believe this was a five-seater. <laughs> so it was big. I'd go out and talk to the media to find out what they wanted to know and then come back to Chief Moose and the others who were making the decisions about what was going to be said. We tried to tell the public everything we could about how to keep safe of course, there's things that we can't tell you because we're in the process of investigating it at this time, that if we were to release the information early, it might ruin everything. We didn't have a whole lot of information to tell the public. So we've tried to provide the best information we could to people. And one of those things was about the white panel van. Police have had little to go on. Only one witness's description of a white truck speeding away from one murder scene. School children were kept indoors through the day, and police were on hand when schools let out. Police admit they don't know who or what they're dealing with or what their motive might be. The first big day is like, why Montgomery County? Who has a grudge? What are they trying to prove? That's Patrick McNerney, the homicide detective who'd been assigned to the first murder outside the shopper's food warehouse. Now, after four more shootings in Montgomery County, the case and potential motives looked very different. Who are people who work for the police department might be a little unhinged, either current or retired. Let's find out where these people are and actually put your hand on them and know where they were during this time frame. 
And that was our the, you know, first thing we did, kind of like in Wizard of Oz, start at the very beginning of the Yellow Brick Road and you know, work your way out. But that theory would be quickly thrown out. That night at 9.20 p.m., investigators got their first indication that the snipers weren't just focused on Montgomery County. The snipers had now moved into the nation's capital. Hi, I'm Leah Remini, and I am joined by Mike Rinder, and we are very excited to announce that we are continuing our journey with a new podcast called Scientology Fair Game. What is Fair Game? Right. Fair Game is a term in Scientology that, that is used to describe or was used to describe the taking care of, and that's the euphemistic term, okay. threats and enemies of Scientology. What it really is, is a series of writings and policies, directives by L. Ron Hubbard that lay out how you go about destroying someone who is an enemy of Scientology. Listen to Scientology Fair Game on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you in part by the podcast Deep Cover. Hey everyone, we want to tell you about another podcast we think you'll love. Marijuana, guns, a dictator, the Cold War, and the greatest undercover drug bust in history. Deep Cover is the true story that begins with a Detroit FBI agent going undercover in an outlaw motorcycle gang and ends with the U.S. invasion of a foreign country. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Jake Halpern guides listeners on this wild journey, perfect for fans of Narcos, Sons of Anarchy, or anything by the Coen brothers. Deep Cover. You can hear it now in your favorite podcast app or at deepcoverpod.com. It was now 9.20 p.m., the night of October 3rd. After laying low for almost 12 hours, the snipers had just shot their fifth victim of the day, and they'd crossed over the border into Washington, D.C. Yeah, we got a guy just shot out here. I'm, I'm on the corner of Georgia and freaking Salamia Street. The victim, Pascal Charlot, was a 72-year-old Haitian immigrant and a retired carpenter. He was standing on a street corner when he was shot. Pascal Charlot died less than an hour later. There were a few witnesses nearby when the shot rang out. One reported seeing a sedan driving with its headlights off. Another saw a bright flash of light, but that was about it. No one had spotted the white box truck, let alone its license plate. The next morning, Friday, October 4th, Maryland's chief medical examiner autopsied the victims and extracted bullet fragments from their bodies. He sent them to Walter Dandridge Jr., a forensic firearm examiner at the ATF lab in Maryland. It's not unusual for state and local to ask ATF to assist them with 
firearms-related crimes. ATF, in fact, is the firearms police, essentially. My name is Walter Dandridge, Jr. I work for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. Firearms have rifling cut into the barrel, and they're in a helical twist within the barrel. And so when the bullet is fired, that rifling imparts a spin on the bullet. You see a quarterback throw a football in slow motion and it has this tight spiral and it's flying straight and true. You want this tight spiral spin in order to maintain the stability of the projectile. A gun's rifling does more than add a spin to the bullet. It carves grooves into the sides of the bullet as well, creating marks that a forensic firearm examiner like Dandridge can analyze. Dandridge compared the bullets from different shootings against one another to see if they had been fired from the same gun. So I stick one projectile on the left stage of the comparison microscope, and I'll stick the second projectile on the right stage of the microscope. And I'm looking through the eyepiece, and I can manipulate the bullets on each of those stages, rotating them and looking at the microscopic marks. I can raise the magnification to 20, 25, 30x and see those marks clearly. If all of that is corresponding, then we will call that an identification, which would indicate that they were fired from the same firearm. Dandridge confirmed what everyone feared. All of the recovered bullets had been fired from the same high-powered rifle. There was a sniper on the loose who'd killed one person on Wednesday, October 2nd, and then five more on Thursday, October 3rd. And now it was Friday, October 4th, and everyone was on edge about what would happen next. Here's retired homicide detective McNerney again. It was Friday. I had just gotten in into the office, and my supervisor, Nick DiCarlo, came to me and says, listen, you need to get your papers together. You're going to Fredericksburg, Virginia for a shooting outside of a Michaels down there. What is your emergency? Yes, I am in front of Michaels and somebody's out here who needs some help. Okay, what's going on? I'm not sure. There was a loud crack and she said she needs help and she's lying down. Do you think she's blood. injured or? Uh, yeah, definitely injured. She hurt herself? I'm not sure. Some way? There was okay. a loud... No, it looks like she's been shot or something. She's been shot, yeah. She's, she's been, been shot. shot, okay. I have to come back and get my son out of the car. <laughs> yeah, I know. Let's get you out of here. Okay, we're getting somebody on the way. I pulled up and there was a loud, you know, gunshot. <laughs> Did you see anything or anyone? You just heard a loud pop? I heard the call for help and I saw the car. You saw the car? I didn't, I didn't see the car. You didn't see the car? I saw... <laughs> I noticed that a car was squealing away, but I did not see it. Okay, I did, did anyone not... else? No, same thing. We were aware that a car sped away, but we did not actually process what it was. Okay. Someone said there was a man in it. What about the lady that's injured? Did she see it? A lot of people around her right now. Did you actually see the car? No, she didn't see it. Okay. Are you in the... Is she in the parking lot? Yeah, yeah. She's in the parking lot, yeah. Forty-three-year-old Caroline Sewell was the seventh victim in just three days. She'd just finished a simple errand at Michael's, 
and she was loading bags into her minivan when a bullet pierced her back. It tore through her liver and punctured her lung. But when Detective McNerney heard that this shooting, like the first, took place at a Michael's craft store, he perked up. Now we at least have some connection. You know, what are the connections between these two places? And so this thing happens in Spotsylvania County in Virginia. My supervisor, Nick, said, listen, you got two helicopters waiting for you over at the police academy, and they'll take you down there. That was my big adventure to fly in a helicopter with the FBI. As Detective McNerney flew south to Fredericksburg, Virginia, Caroline Sewell was medevaced north to a hospital in Fairfax. Matter of fact, our helicopters crossed one another's path on the way down there. Sewell was rushed into emergency surgery, and miraculously, she survived. Meanwhile, McNerney's helicopter arrived in Fredericksburg. We landed right in the parking lot where the Michaels was down there. And when I went in and I was talking to the manager of the place, I, you know, what is your connection with Montgomery County? Oddly enough, the same guy who set up the store in Montgomery County set up the store in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Okay, well, now we have a connection. And, you know, why would somebody want to shoot you or somebody at the store? And we're coming up with blanks on that. McNerney was convinced that the crimes were connected, but he'd need a bullet to prove it. The round was recovered, or what was left of it. Apparently, Miss Sewell was putting stuff in the back of her van. Her arm was up pulling down the tailgate when she was shot. The round went through her and stayed inside the rear of the van. I met with the sheriff explaining, this is what we have in Montgomery County. What you're telling me here fits the things that we're looking for. And then there was discussion about what are you going to do with the round? And there's like, well, well, we'll submit it to Virginia State Police and, you know, we'll get something back in a couple months. Like, let me make this offer to you. Sign the evidence over to me and I'll take it directly down to the ATF lab and they'll examine it, hopefully within 24 hours. They ultimately said that's the better route. And fortunately for me, the FBI stayed there with their helicopter. It was interesting, though, this was a sniper helicopter, old Huey. So on the way down there, I could sit on the outboard seat looking out the window with the doors wide open. But on the way back, the guys had their night vision goggles on, and they were sitting on the outboard seat. Like, wow, I didn't know it would be a target. But I got back there. I took the round to ATF. He had his lights and sirens on, and the brakes were smoking when he reached the lab. That's forensic firearm examiner Walter Dandridge again. There was a lot of urgency during this time, but the urgency wasn't at the sacrifice of quality. We didn't do anything different with the sniper investigation other than once we received the evidence, we worked it right through. If that meant working all night, we did that as opposed to quitting after eight hours. The next morning, the decision was, yes, it's included in our case. Let's get the sheriff up here and uh, do the press announcement. The weekend brought a break from the shootings, and some wondered if the spree had ended as quickly as it began. But police were working overtime. They interviewed employees from Michaels, questioned white box truck owners, and checked up on people who'd recently bought or sold rifles in the area. But they didn't come up with many promising leads. On Saturday, October 5th, police said they had detained a man, Robert Baker III, who had been reported missing around the time of the shootings. He'd left his home in Montgomery County, Maryland, 
and taken with him a rifle that fired the same kind of bullets used in the attacks. And reportedly, he was affiliated with militia and white supremacist groups. But after initial hopes he was connected to the attacks, police ruled him out. Speaking to the Washington Post, Montgomery County Police Chief Charles Moose said, quote, I would just like to express the fact that Mr. Baker's vehicle is a dark blue GMC pickup truck. It never has been white, never has been associated with the white box truck we've been talking about. The next day, Sunday, October 6th, marked the first funeral for one of the victims, Prim Kumar Walaker, the taxi driver who'd been shot at the gas station. Caroline Namro attended. She was the doctor who witnessed the shooting and gave Wallacher CPR. It was very, it was very emotional, obviously very devastating to his family. They asked me what his final words were and I, I told them, you know, unfortunately he didn't have time to say any messages to his family. And um, I did relay what had happened. And then they asked me to speak, which I was quite shocked that they wanted me to speak. It was a very big funeral, it was in a church. During the time that people were speaking, I had a few minutes to sit down and collect my thoughts, and I did get up and speak. I remember saying that it was such a, a terrible waste of a life, this is devastating, and I remember thinking that I should try and say something religious because it wasn't a church. Um, so I, uh, the only thing I could think of was a blessing to the family that God would turn his face to them, shine his light on them and give them peace, which is the priestly blessing. And uh, I said to the police liaison lady, I said, I don't want my face to be on television. They still hadn't found the snipers. I didn't want anybody to find me or come to the house or anything. In the evening, if I was putting the kids to bed and it was very quiet in the house, I just felt a little nervous. Everyone shared that anxiety, even police officers working the case. Here's retired Maryland State Police Lieutenant David Reichenbaugh again. I was a, a parent of a teenage girl at that point. Hey, your kids are everything. There's concern, there's panic, and of course there's that... I want to call it the unrealistic thought process because I went through it too. I was concerned about my kid. Is my kid going to be a target in all this? Now, the police side of me says that's just unrealistic and the odds are astronomical. But dad part of me says, hey, my kid could be the next target. I guarantee you every parent Certainly in Montgomery County, and, and now the District of Columbia, we're beginning to think the same thing. How could you not? And then Monday, October 7th, 8.08 a.m., Benjamin Tasker Middle School, our worst fear. Next time on Monster, D.C. Sniper. This was a copy of Prince George's County 911 call. Hello? Hello, this is Benjamin Castle Middle School. Uh-huh. We have a child out front that says he's been shot. Hi, I'm the principal of the school. Did somebody just drive off with him? Yeah. What? I don't know where. I have no idea. That's the death's head tarot card. The message here is quite obvious. Call me God. They decide who lives. They decide who dies. 
there was a very quick realization that this could be the next stage of a terror campaign. And there it is, all over network news, which meant we had an internal leak. Monster DC Sniper is a 15-episode podcast hosted by Tony Harris and produced by iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. Matt Frederick and Alex Williams are executive producers on behalf of iHeartRadio, alongside producers Trevor Young, Ben Kiebrick, and Josh Thane. Payne Lindsay and Donald Albright are executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV, alongside producers Meredith Stedman and Christina Dana. Original music is by Makeup and Vanity Set. If you haven't already, be sure to check out the first two seasons, Atlanta Monster and Monster the Zodiac Killer. If you have questions or comments, email us at monster at iheartmedia.com, or you can call us at 1-833-285-6667. Thanks for listening. In the high-stakes world of crime and justice, Understanding the legal system is not optional. It's critical. Hi, I'm Philip Holloway, host of the podcast Sworn from Tenderfoot TV and iHeartRadio. Last season, we looked at a number of crimes and cases that highlighted issues in our legal system. This season, we have a new approach. We're tackling the problems directly. We'll look at faulty forensic science, false confessions, and mandatory minimum prison sentences. Season two of Sworn is underway, and it's available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, it's Bobby Bones. I host The Bobby Bones Show, and I'm pretty much always sleepy because I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning. A couple hours later, I get all my friends together, and we get into a room, and we do a radio show. We share our lives, we tell our stories, we try to find as much good in the world as we possibly can, and we look through the news of the day that you'll care about. Also, your favorite country artists are always stopping by to hang out and share their lives and music, too. So wake up with a bunch of my friends on 98.7 WMZQ in Washington, D.C., or wherever the road takes you on the iHeartRadio app.